and going over territory that we've already covered. I, I just love meditating on and, and studying these passages. And I know we have to move on. I know we have to make progress in this book. The first, uh, the first heading I could give you if you're going to take notes is knowing, doing, and turned over. Knowing, doing, and turned over. I'm going to start at verse 15, and, and we're going to do just a little bit of review. Verse 15 is important for us to remember because it's it seems to be the, I don't know what the word is, maybe the word is fulcrum, but a pendulum swings back and forth on something. And I, I think much of Romans hangs on this verse here in verse 15 where Paul says, So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So Paul's readiness to preach is how you and I begin to understand why he even uh, was was compelled to write to the Romans. It is a, a central claim here. And he's not ashamed because this is the power of God unto salvation. And it seems in some ways he reasons backwards because at this point nobody reading the letter would have any idea as to why they even needed any salvation. But the way he works through this thought <clears throat> unfolds almost backwards. So the power of God in salvation for everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek, he's saying in verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Luther thought this word was justice. Luther, Luther got stuck on this verse for, for days. I don't know how long it took him, but um, as you guys know, justice and righteousness are almost twins. The, the, the words in Greek have the exact same root. And just and righteous and justice and righteousness are, are very, very, very similar. And, and Luther... Um, had been thinking for a long time, the justice of God is revealed. And that made, that made Luther terrified of God. And in some ways, it made him despise God. You guys understand what it would mean that if you die tonight or tomorrow, and you must face the only truly just judge, there's ever been. Do you realize what that means? If you face pure justice tonight after you die, what's in store for you? Well, if you know yourself with any honesty, you're toast. When you face the only righteous judge. And so Luther was terrified because he knew God was 
just. But when he discovered that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that he could possess by the merit of the blood and death of Christ, then his joy couldn't be contained. Then then his anticipation and his, I don't know, can, can you revel in it with a man who had been dreading that for those those months and then finally realized the gospel is where the righteousness of God is and the just will live by faith. Back at chapter 2, the just will live by faith. So ultimately, what you find as we work through this argument that is being made, ultimately what you find is here in verse 18. God's wrath is revealed from heaven. And so that's why these these little precepts, these little premises at the top of the argument now begin to take on some really powerful importance. The wrath of God is revealed. From heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So one way you can think about Paul's excitement and joy and his knowledge of the gospel and his ambition to preach it is that he pities all of those who must face the righteousness of God. He pities them because the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. This section of scripture, maybe you have or haven't noticed, it doesn't tell you what God's wrath is. It doesn't even say what it is. And I think most of you would assume that the wrath of God is is something that you would fear. It doesn't sound like a... Uh, a hopeful thing to anticipate the wrath of God. It's something that kind of makes you wonder. Paul gives us no description of it here. He does talk about it later. God's wrath is a little bit like, I think it's a little bit like a swelling mass of water. If you're standing on a beach and you're looking out at a at an ocean with, with no no rocks, no island, no nothing. You're just looking at the ocean, and you might notice that the water is a little bit higher than, than you thought it was. And if you see this slow, subtle rising of the water, it may or may not be a tsunami. An interesting thing about looking out at an ocean and the water rising up is... is there's, there's no perspective. There's nothing to give you any indication. Is this a big hunk of water coming at me or is this just a little, little swell in the water? But as a tsunami gets closer and closer, those who are standing there watching it eventually are like, uh-oh, this, this is not beatable. I can't escape from this. The, the power and the destruction that comes from an actual tsunami when, when, when it hits the shore somewhere is, is one of the most destructive uh, disasters there is. But those who are standing there kind of watching it curiously when it's far away, you have no idea really that, that it's there. And as it gets closer, you start to wonder, man, maybe this thing's big. Maybe this thing is serious. And then all of a sudden, I'm going to die. 
because you can't get away from it. There's nothing you can do about it. The wrath of God is, I'm afraid, a little bit like a tsunami because those who wait and kind of curiously watch, they're kind of only semi-interested. What is the wrath of God? I don't know. doesn't matter. We'll see when it gets here. By the time it's close enough for you to actually anticipate what it is and what it's going to do, it's, it's too late. And you will be overtaken by it. But Paul is given a warning here. What, what you want to recall here is, is in this passage, the righteousness of God is revealed in it, the, the salvation of God, the righteousness of God. And so many today are like, who cares? We don't care. Then he says the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And Paul pities and he wants men to be warned. He wants men to be prepared. What he does talk about is who is in line for this wrath. Who is in line for this wrath? And verse 18 tells us a little bit about who it is. We looked at this, I don't know how many days ago now. But the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. So the wrath of God is coming against those who are ungodly. It's coming against those who are unrighteous. Ungodly is impious. It's it's manners, it's words, it's life that is irreverent. It lives... Um, maybe not ignorant of God, but not caring of God and His rightness and His goodness and His excellence. It's it's living your way despite your knowledge of Him. Commandments 1 through 4 are broken by the ungodly, and commandments 5 through 10 are broken by the unrighteous. So these ones who are in line to experience the wrath of God, it goes on to say, these are men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And interestingly, their, their guilt is crystallized by what we're shown in verses 19 and 20. And verse 19 says, there is a knowledge of God manifest in them. And I want to make sure that you know there's a knowledge of God manifest in you before you were a Christian. There's a knowledge of God manifest in men. Manifest means make known, means uncovered, means revealed. There's a knowledge of God manifest in men, period, is what he's saying. It's shown to them. And and see how this goes when you look at verse 20. There are invisible things shown to men or manifest in men. You see that there? Verse 19 says, Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. They know internally this testimony and this evidence and this witness. For since the creation of the world, he says, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Now, he, he's, not, he's not even asking 
Have you seen the invisible attributes of God? He's saying you've seen them. And so if you want to assume or if you want to imagine that this is a court, and and the court is determining who is standing in line to receive the wrath of God, this is just a simple statement of fact. His invisible attributes have been clearly seen by you. What if you raise your hand in the court and say, well, I haven't seen anything. Is he going to say, oh, I guess I didn't make that clear. I'll give you a pass. Is that how you anticipate this hearing unfolding? The invisible things of him since the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead. He answered the question I asked a moment ago so that they are without excuse. There's no excuse. So what have men done to deserve God's wrath? Well, Paul says men have a knowledge, a seen knowledge manifest in them but they are impious. They are impious. They are ungodly. They don't behave like people who have a a proper understanding of what God is and who God is and what He does. Pious is a word we don't really use in our contemporary English, is it? It used to be easy to understand, so we use the word godly. We recognize the word godly. It's somebody who has a, a mouth that is restrained and, and contained to speak edifying words. It's, it's a mouth that doesn't speak coarse words. It's a personality that is considerate, that has manners, that is reverent as in thanking God for the beautiful blue sky or for the wonderful food that we have or praising the Lord for His kindness to us in the many different ways that you recognize His kindness to you throughout the day. Are your legs still holding you up? Does your brain still have the capacity to see the sunrise or to smell something good in the kitchen or to appreciate the smile of your husband or your wife? When, when you are working the way you were made to work, does that make you praise the Creator who, who made you? Like That's what a godly person does, but these men are ungodly. And really it's the corporation of humanity that's really under, under view here. They're ungodly and they're unrighteous unrighteous by their secret desires or by their public desires. They're unrighteous by the way they cheat, the way they steal, the way they steal time from an employer. They're unrighteous in so many ways. The scripture shows us the unrighteous deeds of men in every chapter of scripture what we end up realizing and and, and the case gets stronger and more clear as we work our way through the letter, men are defective in their ability to be like the standard that's manifest in their own heart. 
In other words, the way they are able to see what has been manifest to them in their soul, the way they see and what they perceive of God and His Godness and His eternal power, shows them a standard of rightness and of goodness, and they are unable to be this. This is what's wrong with men. If you look at verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Foolish in their imaginations, foolish in their opinions about God and about right and about wrong. I was kind of thinking through some of these and ones that we have heard in our day and age. Have you ever thought maybe that God is a synthesis of all of the best religious ideas that you've heard? Has your perception of God maybe as a kid or maybe as an adult has your idea of God been a concoction of, of the things that you think would make a good God and, and you removing things that you think would make a bad God? And you Maybe you've kind of worked through your religious ideals and the things you accept and reject, kind of like going to Burger King and, and you get your burger the way you want it. And if you've done that, even just once for a minute, the scripture would call that blasphemy. God's word would say you're an idolater for inventing your own God, for inventing your own religion. Have you ever thought God is a woman or thought that God would be better if God is a woman and, and you despise Christians who call God a male being? Well, that's blasphemous. It's just not how God has made himself known to the world, but if you've done that, you've committed a, a sinful blasphemy against God. Have you ever thought that God was the force guiding evolution? Attributing the creative work of the highest order of creation who's created in his image. Have you ever attributed that to evolution and thought, well, God's just kind of behind it. He's, he's kind of pushing and working evolution around. This is These are contemporary ways that, that I think men take what has been shown to them of the almighty creator and the only one worthy of our praise and, and our giving glory to him. These are the kinds of things that are ungodly, and unrighteous. Evolution is one of the great idols of the last century. You know why men love evolution? It absolves men of their accountability to the Creator. Evolution just thinks that there is some invisible creative machine causing things to happen by accident with no moral Creator, no expectations from the one who made us so people love evolution because evolution doesn't care about fornication. Evolution doesn't care about you having your own personal ethics standard. Evolution doesn't care about whether you're a responsible or irresponsible drug user. But God's witness 
has always been available to men. God's witness has been manifest in them. It's been shown to us. And yet our minds are a factory of idolatry, of unrighteousness. And so Romans chapter 1 and these few verses make this case against men. Here in Romans chapter 1 in particular, we're taught a history of man's nature, a history of the development of the nature of mankind. And what we see is that men prefer their own opinion and their own sense, even over revelation. That is, we call scripture special revelation. But men prefer their own ideas and their own preferences, even over special revelation. And Paul will go into more of this as as we go through the book. But God's wrath is revealed from heaven against these men. This is what God's wrath is coming after, is those kind of men. And and whether you like it or not, it is all of us. There's a portion of history very lightly treated in the book of Genesis. Um, Genesis chapter 6, 1 to 3. Don't lose your place here in Romans, but I just wanted to point to you a couple of um, examples of, of where we see something taking place like what we are reading about in Romans chapter 1. Genesis 6, 1 to 3 speaks about people who knew the Creator, of course. They knew God. They even knew Adam and Eve. It says, It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men. They were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years So we see in these three lines here, there's an activity going on among men that God takes to be a a work of rebellion. The mention of 120 years there is how many years there is before the judgment of God comes in the form of a flood. And if we go on to read down at verse 6, it says, And the Lord was sorry he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. I just wanted you to, to see that we don't know the names of any of these men. But we see their lives progressing in godlessness to the point where God had to execute his judgment on all of men. You guys know the story, but it it came by a process of them going from bad to worse. In Genesis chapter 10, there's a man named Nimrod who is a son of Cush, who is a son of Ham, I'm pretty sure. We're not going to go and read there, but interestingly, um, I I pulled out just this little quote here that I was going to read you. According to Josephus, who is not a Christian historian, but a Jewish historian, um, he says of Nimrod, he said that uh, Nimrod would be revenged on God, or he would get his revenge against God 
if he should have a mind to drown the world again. In other words, Nimrod thought to himself, I will show God, I will get God if he tries to drown us again. He would build a tower too high for the waters to reach and he would avenge himself on God for destroying their forefathers. It's from a book or a, a history book Josephus wrote called Antiquities of the Jews. So we see these men acting according to their own ways, Nimrod being an example of a person who decided he would oppose the creator and he would oppose the judge. Men follow this course, this path. So there's a pattern here. Men know what has been manifest in them and they do what is wicked. They're knowing is coupled with, I don't know what else to call it, but a dissonant doing. What they know makes perfect right sense to predict a certain life and a certain behavior, but what they do does not connect. So they know and they do, and there's a huge disconnect. Professing to be wise, they became fools, is what we're reading here. So look at what they know in verse 19. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Look at what they know in verse 20. For since the creation of the world is invisible, attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so they're without excuse. And look at what they do. Look at what they do. So there's what they know. Verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. So there's a, a doing that does not make sense with what they know. Nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. Look at verse 23. What did they do? Change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Look at verse 25. Who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Verse 26. For, the re for this reason God gave them up to vile passions, even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. There's another thing they do that makes no sense given what they have been shown verse 27 likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burn in their lust for one another men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves a penalty of their error which was due and verse 28 what do they do and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge what's the opposite of retain throw away toss it out Forget it. So what do they do? They forget the only one that they should keep in their memory. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. So look in your heart. Look in your own past. Look at your life. Take your life into view and in light of these things, and do these charges expose you as an ungodly person or as a godly person? Do these things expose you as a godly man or an unrighteous man in your thoughts and in your ways? 
question I wanted to ask you to, to think about is, does your conversion know the shame and the guilt? Does, does being born again to you mean you recognize and you know the shame and the guilt of your godlessness and your unrighteousness? As you look back on your life, what many of us would be able to see a time that you would call pre-conversion, unless you were converted as a very, very young child. Does your conversion know the shame and the guilt of your godlessness and your unrighteous thoughts and ways? Romans chapter 1 is not written so that you can go, now I know who you guys are. Romans chapter 1 primarily is written so you can go, now I know what the problem is and where it came from. So do you know this? Is your conversion aware of the fact that you are like the idolaters that God speaks to in Revelation 1 who are rightly expecting the wrath of God? Do you see yourself this way? When you thank the Lord in in your secret prayer time, do you thank Him for forgiving godlessness and blasphemy and self-love? Do you see those things in your life and you say, Lord, forgive me? Because of my blasphemous thoughts, because of my selfishness. You praise Him that the Savior lived a perfectly righteous life to exchange for your perfectly unrighteous life. Is is your prayer to the Savior acknowledging Him for that and thanking Him for that? Because that's what a a devoted Christian does. We are so devoted to the Savior who would forgive these things. We love the Savior who would forgive us of our awful sinfulness. Or have you just excused your ignorance or never considered it? The charges spelled out here, and if you work on them, if you meditate them, These charges are meant so that you might understand your own nature. There are basic evils exposed and revealed here that that expose how you are not what you are created to be. You're created to be someone who would glorify the Creator and the Savior. You acknowledge his rightness and his holiness with all of your thoughts and all of your words. So a devotional life is in constant commerce with the Creator and the Savior, and we are praising him. We are thanking him. We are asking him for forgiveness. The gospel is the hope for wrath that comes against the life that we all live, both in our minds and and in the real world. Well, what we see as this unfolds, there's a disguised wisdom in Romans. And what I mean is at a point here, he said, professing to be wise, they became fools. A disguised wisdom really means foolishness, wearing wisdom's clothes. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And so disguised wisdom were professing to be wise. It says they became fools and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
This is the progress of men going from this early stage of thanklessness, of ungodliness and unrighteousness. Okay? The early stages of man's betrayal of his rightness toward God and toward other men is in these three little things, okay? So this foolishness becomes a darkened heart. Their foolish hearts were darkened. And then what happens after this? Well, when men act out the course of their imaginations, when men begin to do these early stages, that was thanklessness, not acknowledging his godness and his eternal power. When men do that, there are negative consequences that worsen their state. And I know we mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but... The cause and effect of wickedly ascribing awe. That is, God is the one worthy of your awe. God is the one worthy of your giving glory to Him. When you give it to something else, when your glory goes to a created thing instead of the Creator, there is a heart corruption. Hearts grow dark. Because of this, and therefore men's ability to perceive and discern what is right and good and great is also corrupted. Men didn't anticipate this, but that is what happens. And so their nature, their nature is undergoing a a, a, a DNA mutation. There's something happening to a man's spirit in this process. It is truly corrupting his nature. So Paul is saying when this early step of corruption takes place, then another one takes place. You stop giving glory to God and then your heart grows dim. This is a corruption in the nature of man. Okay. So nature, um, the, the natural being that is, those men without any assistance in the early days of his corruption, what helped them do that? What helped men stop giving glory to God? Why did they do that? They did it because they were men. They did it because they were men. They didn't need any help. That's the point. Okay? What happens when men do what they did not need any help doing? What happens? Then they become worse. Hearts darkened. So their natural being defies God, and their natural being then becomes more corrupt. And verse 22 says they became fools. This is the natural path for men, is to become fools. The mind of the man is where the root of his wrath worthiness comes from. The mind of the man is the thing that is comprehending glory, that is ascribing glory to the thing that the man wants to give glory to. This is where it's taking place. And this becomes in them evil and wickedness. But if you look at verse 24, 26, and 28, after these first two steps, then you see 24, 26, and 28. What's going on in 24? Therefore God gave them up to uncleanness. So man's kind of been falling. And what we'll see here in a second here is, is God then gives them up. So now here's an action being taken by God himself. Look at verse 26. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions. 
Well, verse 24 said, God gave them up to uncleanness. Verse 26 said, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. And then verse 28 says, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. The mind's workings, the, the nature of man turns from this early kind of corruption, which is just godlessness. It, it, it's a man who will not ascribe to him what should be ascribed to the creator that made him. When, when that first thing happens, then he begins to fall. And the mind's workings turns to these doings, which are idolatries, and then it advances to being turned over, and then even worse, crooked doing, even worse, corrupt doing. And man found himself sliding into deeper and deeper depravity. This one here, verse 24. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. This speaks about God giving them up to lust. The word that says he gave them up it can mean imprisoned, as in placed in the, in the prison. The word can mean delivered over, as in when the judge has made the decision in the courtroom, the, the person in question is delivered to the jailer, and then the jailer takes him and does to him whatever it was that was determined by the judge. Is this, this word can mean that. Literally, it means given into the hands. Therefore, God gave them into the hands. And the, the word here, um, uncleanness, I've got three words that we could replace uncleanness with here. Lustful is one of the words. Luxurious is another one of the words. And I got a real good one for you guys. Profligate. If you're a homeschooler, maybe you know what profligate means. It means excess. And so it's like the word luxurious. It, 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 it means you become a, a, a massive consumer of, 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 of little good things or, or too much of things. Profligate is kind of like the kind of life that the prodigal son goes and lives when he gets all the money from his father. What does he do? He spends it on women. He spends it on alcohol. He spends it on every kind of excess that he can find. So when it says God gives them into the hands of, let's just use the word luxurious excess. And that word luxurious can have the, the, the passionate kind of uh, meaning to it or a sexual kind of meaning to it. God gives them over to this. He delivers them to this. Where does this take men? Interestingly, do you notice that it says through the lusts of their own hearts? 
They're delivered over to it. The scripture says through the lusts in their own hearts. Now think about this with me for a second. If there is a lust in the heart of you, what keeps you from following it? What keeps you from pursuing some lustful course in your life if it's not the mercy of God? And if you think it's your self-discipline or your virtue, you're wrong. It is the grace of God that keeps a marriage a pure marriage. It is never your own virtue. It is never your own self-discipline. God helps you discipline yourself. He helps protect us. And so when we see men here in, in this verse here turned over to this, it's as if the fence that was around lust in the man's heart was removed. God takes away this restraint that is in him. The desire and the, the lust in their hearts to dishonor or to shame their own bodies between themselves. And it goes on to say in verse 25, who exchanged, or in other words, they exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. I think most people, probably all people, have at times gone after a secret desire. You have some sort of even a a lustful desire that you found a way to give to yourself or to do. And when you got it, when it happened, it, it wasn't anything like the thing that was driving you to try to have it. There is a a lie in the natural man that will tell you to go after and it could be sensual, it could be money it could be a power thing men can find this this little thing in their heart that is pressing them to go after this kind of a temptation this kind of a ambition that can grow and swell in a man and when he gets it, when he finally gets it They may have a moment of of their victory dance. Oh, I got it. I did it. But a day later or a week later, they begin to feel like a fool. They begin to feel like they have done wrong and they, they begin to feel convicted about what a foolish thing it was for them to to pursue this thing. This thing is a lure. And Once men give up on the joy and the pleasure of actually seeking to know God and walking with God, when men give up on knowing Him, when they give up on wanting to know Him and to pursue knowing Him, then these things can begin to sprout up in our hearts, and it's called idolatry. And the heart can become an idol factory. And then the heart begins a slide the heart begins a, a collapsing into a self-pleasing life and pursuing and having the desires of your eyes. This is what is in men. This is what is in you. This is what is warned to us here in 
this text of Scripture. So being given over to it simply means that you're allowed to have it and you are allowed to be had by this lust. It has you. It takes you. This first one, and and we will look a little more in the future at the other two, but this first one is what we would call natural. This first lust that is mentioned here is, is natural, as in it is between men and women, which is the natural function of the man and the woman. This first one is between men and women, but it's not governed by God's framework. And that's what makes it wrong in this case. Chastity until marriage is God's rule. Marriage in a single-minded fidelity is God's standard and is right. But taking an extra partner or taking another person's partner or spouse, taking another person's spouse, having intimacy outside of the marriage vow is immoral because God has set those boundaries around that relationship. And yet these are given to the godless and the impious as their judgment. Do you notice here in the text that we read, God gave them over to it. Now, that was not a reward. That was judgment. The judgment was living in that state of pursuing and having the fruits of that lust. That is the judgment. Why is that a judgment? Why is that a judgment? Think about that this afternoon when you go home. Why is having all of the lustful desires of your sinful nature turn into your judgment? Why is that judgment? That's an important question. And what you're going to find when you answer that question is God knows what you need. God knows what is good and what is right for you and I. And when we have, when we try to have what he's never given to us, we ruin us. We destroy family. We destroy community life when we go and try to have what has never been given to us under God's commandments. Ungodly, common behavior is the result of being given up to uncleanness, which is exactly what we see here in verse 24. So, This judgment which allows men to chase their unfaithfulness. This judgment allowing men to do this. Is a man to man version. I'll try to explain this, but it's a man to man version of what they gave to God. Let me explain this. They would not keep faithfulness to God. There is a certain kind of admiration that man was created to have to his God. There is a certain kind of glorying to your God that is owed to him. There is a certain kind of faithfulness that is owed to God by you. And when you will not give it to him, when you begin to slide down this road of of immorality, so then God lets them practice that very sin among themselves. 
In other words, a man is made for his wife and a wife is made for her man, period. So when she cheats on him or when he cheats on her, what is the nature of what now exists in that marriage relationship? Or even in that marriage relationship in the third person? What's happening now in that? It's a picture of what happens when a man's heart abandons his Creator. It's a picture of what we do when we turn our heads and our hearts against our God. It's adultery. It's fornication. And it destroys families. It destroys love. It destroys rightness. But God gives them over to it. He lets them practice this sin among themselves. And while they experience fleeting moments of passionate pleasure, conflict and sadness and betrayal and loneliness and sickness, both physical and spiritual, are following. These things are unavoidable when men and women do this. Multiple partners become more and more common in the culture. Disease and sickness resulting from this becomes more and more common. Lloyd Jones, no, I'm sorry, not Lloyd Jones, James Boyce, he, he talked about AIDS for a couple minutes in his commentary. He said there was an article in Time magazine in 1987, and he, he made a couple of quotes out of this Time magazine article. In 1987, AIDS was a scary thing in our culture because there, there was such a, uh, a, a common seeking of as many partners as people wanted to have in the 80s a lot of people were getting AIDS and dying of AIDS. And so the culture at large, Christian and non-Christian alike, started backing away from living a wild uh, sex-seeking lifestyle because they didn't want to die. But in the culture you and I live in now, that's long gone. People have completely forgotten that AIDS was a thing to be worried about, haven't they? AIDS isn't the judgment against sexual sin. It's a judgment against sexual sin, along with other kinds of sicknesses that come from it. So what happened to men who got what they wanted when they found God's deity and his invisible power uncompelling? What happened to men when they weren't compelled by the greatness and the glory of God? When men were prideful and unthankful, they lost their advantage. They lost their ability to discern God's glory and His power and His eminence. They were made to be Godward in their dependence. They were made to be Godward in their glorying. They were made to be Godward in their thanking and their hoping and their resting. But leaving this, their hearts are crippled and their eyes are dimmed. And they cannot help but think and live like their own gods. I know I've kept you here for a while, but think carefully about what I'm saying. Men who abandon the greatness and the glory of God, they become their own gods. It is the worst kind of idolatry. And you are your own God. You will live a miserable life, I promise you. And then you'll go to hell. Godlessness is the ultimate loss, and it is the greatest unfulfillment 
And it is the most deceitful path. Because the end of this life is the beginning of eternity. And this life must be spent preparing to meet the God of eternity. You must pursue knowing Him, rightly knowing the God of eternity in this life. He's prepared wrath for those who come to that day ignoring the Son. He's prepared wrath because the Son spent His life so that you could have the righteousness that God requires. The Son gave His life so that you and I could possess the righteousness that God requires. This won't make you the the virtuous, perfect Adam unless you're in Christ. Christ is your only hope of righteousness. Christ is your only hope of uprightness and godliness. All the godlessness and unrighteousness and thanklessness and sun-ignoring and self-pleasing will end in an eternal denial of entry to the kingdom prepared for those who love the Savior. It will all come to an end. I believe the day is short at hand and the gospel is the power of God and salvation. Because in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Who is Christ? Paul will finally tell us it is Christ. Christ is your righteousness for you who would repent of your sin and put your hope and trust in Him. Christ is our entry into the eternal kingdom of God. He was the only one worthy of our praise and our hope. You will come to the end of this life accepted and welcomed because of the righteousness of God in Christ only. There is no other way. You will come to your end welcomed by the God of eternity and the owner of heaven, if you stand in the righteousness of Christ. And His righteousness can be yours. You confess your sin. You ask God to forgive you for your idolatries, for your adulteries, for your fornications, for your self-loving, idolatrous self. Every single one of us is that man that they talk about here in Romans chapter 1. And you and I who have repented, told God our misery for this sinful life we've chosen, we will live with Him forever. And you who want your idols, you who want your sinful, self-seeking ways, you will go to eternity in hell without God the Father and the Son and the Spirit for the rest of eternity. So what a joy it is for us to know the great gospel of hope in Christ. Will you close in a word of prayer with me? Father in heaven, how I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the gospel that reveals the perfect man who died on my behalf. How I praise you, dear God. Forgive me for my idol-making heart. Forgive us, Lord. And, oh, Lord, how I pray you would give us wisdom and discernment and power to live our days rightly before you. 
In Jesus' name we pray.